Recently, I ran across a list of famous last words. These are final pronouncements before departing this earth. Let me read you a few. You can make it easy. That train isn't coming so fast. Famous last words. Here's one. Give me a match. I think my gas tank is empty. How about this one? Let's see if it's loaded. Or step on it. We're only going 75 miles an hour. If you knew anything, you wouldn't be a traffic cop. Well, that's, that's bad. And then here's, here's the last one. Uh, no, next last one. Just watch me die from that bridge. And here's the last, famous last words. What? Your mother is going to stay another month? Just a few last words from foolish people. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at some famous last words from our wise and loving Heavenly Father. Scholars call the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament the 400 silent years. You see, prior to Malachi, every Hebrew generation had been given its own prophets. From the conquest, through the captivity, even to their comeback, from the early days of Joshua to the latter days of Nehemiah, from Moses to Malachi, God had supplied the Jewish people a long line of prophets who heralded his word. For a thousand years, there was always a messenger and a message. But around 400 BC, that succession of prophets ceased. God became silent. He stopped speaking to his people. The Babylonian Talmud, a Jewish commentary, states, Malachi was last written and the spirit departed. In a sense, the Holy Spirit went dark. Malachi was the Old Testament's farewell address. It was the last word that God spoke for 400 years. Malachi was especially important because it was the message that God wanted ringing in his people's ears for four centuries. Tonight, we're going to study the last two chapters of this last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3 and 4. Chapter 3 begins, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. This verse reminds me of the story of the young pastor fresh out of seminary. He was preaching his very first sermon, his debut sermon. He had never been more nervous. But he remembered that in one of the courses that he had taken, the professor had said that if you ever lost your place in the sermon, if your mind ever went blank, to have a phrase, a catchphrase, that you could just sort of throw in to sort of sustain the flow of the sermon and jar your mind back into gear. This young pastor chose the phrase from Malachi here, Behold, he is coming. Well, several times that morning, the nervous preacher lost his place, and each time it happened, he slammed his fist down on the pulpit and he shouted, Behold, he is coming. It gave him time to reboot his sermon. About the third time he did this, though, he slammed his fist down on the pulpit so hard that the pulpit rocked over and toppled off of the podium into the front row, and the preacher followed it and wound, wound up in this lady's lap, one of the old ladies of the church. Well, the young pastor was so embarrassed 
He climbed to his feet, apologizing profusely. That's when the woman told him, sorry, don't worry about it, sir. You warned me three times you were coming. Well, here's Malachi's message in these last two chapters. Behold, the Lord is coming. The prophet simultaneously will speak of both the first and second comings of Christ. You know, at times Malachi is difficult to interpret because his prophecies of Messiah's incarnation and second coming, events that we know are separated by thousands of years, actually appear in the same verse. At times, even in the same breath. Here's where we need to compare Scripture with Scripture to get the text's true meaning. This line in verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, was actually quoted by Jesus, Matthew 11, verse 10, was quoted by Jesus in reference to the ministry of John the Baptist. You remember Isaiah 40, verse 3, called John the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John was the predicted forerunner who would precede Messiah and who would prepare the people's hearts. You remember John. He was a wild man. He was a wilderness man. He was a man schooled with the snakes and scorpions. As Moses was, John was trained on the backside of the desert. He was salted and seasoned by the rigors of desert life. John was a tell-it-like-it-is kind of man. He was removed from the Jewish establishment and the corruption of the priesthood. The prophets had predicted that John would appear on the scene. He would preach God's truth and he would pave the way with a message of repentance for Messiah's coming. Then, once John's ministry was done... Suddenly, Messiah himself would come to his temple. Well, after he was baptized, Jesus went to Galilee, where he spent much of his next few years. But he made an early trip to Jerusalem. And guess where he went? In fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, he came suddenly to his temple. And notice Malachi calls it his temple. The temple didn't belong to Israel's priesthood, nor did it belong to the nation. It was Messiah's temple. Jesus himself called it my father's house. And Jesus acted as if it were his temple. He threw out the money changers. He cleansed the temple of its polluted practices. Jesus made an instant impression. Hey, the astute Jews... Aware of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, they would have recognized what was happening. They would have seen the signs. This was God's word predicted 400 years earlier in Malachi chapter 3. Now keep in mind, chapter 3, verse 1, is in response to the question that Malachi asked, or the people of Malachi's day asked, back in chapter 2, verse 17. You remember the question? Where is the God of justice? Where is this God you say is going to judge us? Because God had not punished their wickedness in Malachi's day, they were scoffing at His righteousness. They were mocking God. Oh, your God is nothing but a paper tiger. Oh, He's all bark and no bite. Since God does nothing to judge our sin, He must be okay with our evil. Of course, their logic was ludicrous. Their thinking neglected their history. It ignored God's prophecy. Their past and their future taught them that God does punish sin. And here is Malachi's answer 
to their question, where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, He is coming. He's coming. For now, God is waiting. He's being patient. He's hoping you'll repent. But He is coming. And when He does, the wicked will be judged. Notice verse 2. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. Fire separates slag from metal. Soap separates dirt from cloth. And Jesus separates sin from human hearts. Jesus is the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. Put your faith in Jesus and He cleans up your life. You know, the fuller was the ancient launderer. It was his job to take a raw garment and free it from the oils and gummy substances that cling to its fibers. He used a pasty white clay made from ashes and resins and putrid urine. He would wash the fiber with this mixture over and over in running water. Workers would then tread the cloth until it was rinsed. Then the garment was hung out to dry and bleached by the sun. All this was done in the fuller's house. And because of the odors the procedure produced, it meant the fuller's house was usually located somewhere way outside the city. And let's not miss the parallels. Jesus is like the ancient fuller, the launderer. The cleansing he offers is not a one-time purification. It's like the procedure of a fuller. When we give our lives to Christ, we become a new creation. But the Christian life is still plagued, isn't it? By oily, gummy sins, sins of the past that like to stick to the fibers of the flesh. You see, when we're saved, Christ, the fuller, He begins the cleansing process. He rinses us. Then He treads us down and beats out our pride and our self-sufficiency. He then hangs us out to dry sometimes in the heat of persecution and trials. And often this is done outside the gate where we're shaped by the discipline of loneliness. If you're in Christ, I'm sure you've been taken to the divine dry cleaners, and He's done His work on you. And the imagery of the refiner is also illustrative. The refiner turns up the fire under the metal. The heat causes the impurities to rise to the surface where they're skimmed off the top. The process is repeated over and over again. And how does the refiner know when the purification is complete? How does he know? When he sees his reflection in the surface of the metal. And likewise, Jesus is our refiner. He keeps us in the fire. He turns up the heat. Trials and difficulties bring the slag to the surface in our lives where Jesus skims it off. This is repeated over and over until he receives his reflection in us. Well, notice verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Now, not only will the priests be run out of the temple, Jesus cleansed the temple, prophesied that, but he also prophesies the priest's purification. Yes, they'll be judged, but in the long run, God will purify them. Malachi predicts that the sons of Levi, the priests, will be purified. In a limited sense, this work began at Jesus' first coming. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, 
tells us the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And notice this, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I bet you never saw that. Some of the priests were saved as the message of Jesus was preached. You know, today, Jews, even of the priestly line, continue to be saved whenever the gospel's preached. And yet the ultimate fulfillment of this promise refers to the second coming of Jesus, when the Jews will believe on Him in mass. Zechariah 12 verse 10 predicts this. Zechariah promises, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they've pierced. When Jesus returns, the Jews will see him again. They'll recognize him as their Messiah and they'll turn and repent and believe. Romans 11 verse 26 tells us in that day, all Israel will be saved. All the Jews that have remained will see Jesus, embrace him, and they'll be saved. Verse 4 Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Again, remember Malachi's question, where is the God of justice? He's coming, and He will judge the wicked. Malachi continues, for I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Notice this, I am the Lord, I do not change. Theologians speak of God's immutability. He changes not. Hey, God is never boring, but He is forever the same. He's trustworthy. He's rock solid. God's character is changeless. For a world like ours in a state of flux, where the only thing certain is that nothing seems certain, what a comfort it is to have a God who says, I do not change. God is the anchor in a sea of continual flux. Realize, God doesn't play to the spirit of the age. God isn't seeking to be politically correct. He doesn't change His mind about what's right and wrong based on the tides and opinions of men. God doesn't read the latest surveys that show where 65% of Americans now say that living with a person before marriage is a good idea. God doesn't look at that and say, well, you know, if if 65% of Americans think it's a good idea, maybe I need to update my rules for sex and marriage. God doesn't think like that. God doesn't care if 100% of Americans just do it. God doesn't care. God's truth is eternal and not dependent on recent polls. God could care less about being politically correct. God is eternally correct. He's immutable. But don't mistake immutable with immobile. God's standards, God's principles never change, but He's quick to make fresh application of those principles to current situations. You could say it like this. God is timeless, but always timely. 
His motives are forever changeless, but His methods are forever changing. God is rigid in His attributes and in His actions, yet He is responsive in His approach. Notice verse 7. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Notice God doesn't need to change. It's people who need to change. Whenever a problem crops up in your life, you can make two reasonable assumptions. First, you can assume that the problem is never God. You can assume that. You can rule that out immediately. And the second assumption you can make is that the problem is usually you. That possibility deserves some strong and some immediate consideration. Usually the key that unlocks the answer to my problem is me. If I'm willing to change, then God will change me. As He says, return to me and I will return to you. But you said... In what way shall we return? And talking about a blind spot, here the Jews in Malachi's day are so ignorant of God's truth that they have no idea where they've departed. They say, in what way shall we return? In verse 8, God gives them an example of how they'd backslidden and how they needed to return to Him. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? in tithes and offerings. Needless to say, robbing God is a serious offense. You remember in John chapter 12, verse 6, we're told that Judas Iscariot was Jesus' treasurer. He kept the money for the group, the disciples. Yet he was stealing from the money bag. Just how low can you go to loot from the Lord? I mean, that's despicable. Stealing from Jesus? Yet Malachi says that you and I can also steal from God. We can be just as despicable as a Judas when we withhold the giving of our tithes and our offerings to the Lord. In the Old Testament, the tithe was not the people's to give. You need to understand that. The first of the flock, the first of the crop belonged to God. He had dibs on the first portion. It wasn't that they were failing to give. They were robbing God of what belonged to Him in the first place. It was as if they were breaking into God's treasury and making off with His money by withholding the tithe. The Jews in Malachi's day were guilty of this crime. And I have to ask us, have we been stealing from God? Verse 9 says to them, You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. You know, God points out evidence to show that the Jews had backslidden from Him. And exhibit A was they had stopped tithing. You know, this is still a prime indicator of a backslidden heart. When a person starts to drift from God, usually the first thing to go is their giving. Here the problem that God cites is that the people were withholding their tithes. The word tithe means tenth. It's first mentioned in Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham gave an offering. It was a tithe or a tenth 
to the priest Melchizedek. In the Mosaic law, there was not just one tithe, but there were actually four different tithes. Three per year and one every third year. This meant that the annual tithe in the Old Testament for the Jews was not just 10%, but 33%. In other words, the first one-third of the people's income belonged not to them, but to God. And so the question arises, are New Testament believers under the Old Testament laws concerning tithing? And here's my answer. We are free from the law, but not from the principle. You see, we're free from the laws of tithing to the same degree as we're free from the laws concerning diet, kosher and not kosher, or concerning feasts, or concerning sacrifices, or Sabbath. God isn't concerned any longer with whether we do work on Saturday. But isn't there some wisdom in setting aside one day out of seven for rest and worship? Of course there is. In other words, the principle applies. And the same is true with our tithing. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Notice Jesus doesn't stipulate an amount or even an interval. But the principle behind our giving is still in force. He wants us to give. It's good for us. It's a blessing to God's work. In fact, the New Testament doesn't mention a tenth or a tithe. Because why would God want to limit us to 10%? In the Old Testament, the, Lord tithe, the word tithe, or the, the idea of the tithe, belonged to the Lord. But understand that in the New Testament, we're taught that all that we have, not just 10%, but 100% belongs to the Lord. Remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. I think he was thinking of their giving. Oh, they were so proud that they gave 10%. But the Holy Spirit wants us to know that all of our lives belongs to God. He is the one that should guide our giving, how much and when. And you know, it's hard for me to really believe that I have given it all to the Lord if I'm not willing to turn loose of a meager 10%. In medieval times, there were armies that were converted to Christianity. And yet when the soldiers were baptized, they kept their sword hand out of the water. That way, if they resorted to indiscriminate killing in the future on the battlefield, they could justify it by saying, well, this hand was never baptized. I'm afraid there are many modern Christians who get baptized with their wallet out of the water. They've given themselves to Christ, but they plan to handle their money their own way. And if that's your attitude, you need to know you're robbing from God. It's true, we're not under the law of tithing, but don't ignore the principle. Give a tenth of your income is still a good discipline to adopt. You know, when you tithe, you're trusting that God can do more with, you, with 90% than you can do with 100%. Don't you have enough faith to believe that? Well, verse 10 tells us, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, 
that there may be food in my house. Apparently, the storehouse referred to the temple treasury. And the priests were supported from these resources. God wanted to make sure that his priests had an ample supply. Paying the priests was one reason God required the tithe. This is also how pastors get paid, from the tithes. Verse 10 continues, And try me now in this. In other words, in your tithing, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. To my knowledge, this is the only place in the Bible where God dares us to put him to the test. As a matter of fact, we're often cautioned not to presume upon God. Avoid projecting your expectations on him. We're to leave the outcome to his sovereignty, yet not here. When it comes to tithing, we are commanded to test him, to try him, to prove the faithfulness of his word. Earlier I read the first half of Luke chapter 6, verse 38, but let me read it in its entirety. Give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Why? For the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. See, as New Testament believers, how much should you give? Well, how much, should, how much do you want? How much should I give to God? Well, how much do you want God to give back to you? The answer is, how much do you want to receive? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. We need to see our giving as an investment. If we make wise investments, we'll reap tremendous dividends. If we make generous investments, we'll have a generous return. How much we reap depends on how much we sow. I once heard of a man who came to his pastor for help. He confessed that since he had gotten this new job, he was having problems tithing. He said, when I was making $200 a week, tithing was no big deal. But now that I'm making $1,500 a week, man, I'm having a hard time writing out that check. The pastor decided to pray for him. He said, Lord, please return this man to his $200 a week job so he'll remain in your will and enjoy the blessings of giving. That was not quite the prayer that the man wanted him to pray. It's been said, give according to your income lest God make your income according to your giving. I know of a well-known philanthropist who was asked, how is it that you give away so much and yet you have so much left? The man replied, I shovel out and God shovels in and God has a bigger shovel than I do. John Bunyan once said, a man there was and they called him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. How can that be? Well, hey, God sees our giving, and if we invest in His kingdom, God will give back to us. He says, challenge me, try me, see if this isn't so. Put me to the test, I dare you. Hey, I dare you. Why don't you try to outgive God? I promise you, it can't be done. When Kathy and I first got married, we made a vow, we told ourselves we were going to give the first 
of our income. The first 10% to the Lord. It wasn't much, but we gave it. And through the years of our marriage, 36 years now, we have consistently given 10% of our income to the Lord. And guess what? We have never been late on a bill unless she failed to get it out of the mailbox and give it to me. But we've never been late on a bill because we didn't have enough money. The Lord, the Lord has always provided. And I challenge you. I challenge you. Oh, but I don't have the money. No, you can't afford not to tithe. That's the, that's the point you need to get. If you'll trust the Lord in this area, He'll prove Himself to you. He'll, he'll show Himself strong. If you'll give that first 10% to Him, he'll, he'll make sure that His blessings come back to you. Here's one more thought on tithing before we move on. Realize the practice predated the law of Moses. Tithing was practiced by Abraham. And you remember what the Bible calls Abraham? He's the father of our faith. Since Abe is the example of New Testament saving faith, how appropriate then is it for us to follow his example when it comes to our tithing and our giving? Tithing is not a law, but it is a principle. It's a good guideline, and it shouldn't be ignored. It's a baseline. It's a starting point for our giving. Well, verse 11. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, God will protect their prosperity from the devourer. For them, the devourer was invading armies and disease and plague and drought. For us, the devourer might be inflation or taxation or hidden costs. But God is faithful to protect the person who tithes and to protect their prosperity. He says, your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? And again, this is the structure of Malachi's prophecy. God makes a statement, then the people plead their ignorance or their innocence, and then God comes back and proves his case, which he does here. Here are why their words had been harsh. He says, for you have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? It's interesting, the Hebrew word translated prophet here was the part of the cloth that the weaver cut from the loom so that he could keep it for himself. Here God's people are crying out for their cut. They'd served. They had suffered for God. But all they cared about was what they could get out of. The Jews said that it doesn't pay to serve the Lord. Malachi continues, So now we will call the proud blessed, for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. In other words, serve God and there's no reward. Rebel and there's no punishment. This is what the Jews were saying in Malachi's day. Have you ever thought, you know, does it really pay to serve the Lord? At times, faithfulness in ministry and obedience to God can be tough. Try to help hurting people and often hurting people hurt you. There have been times when I was so dejected, so discouraged, I started to question, is it really, 
Is serving the Lord really worth it? Malachi answers his own question in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Oh, it is so worth it, my friends. For there is a book of remembrance. You remember, God has all kinds of different books in heaven. There is the Lamb's book of life, which is the record of all those who have been converted by the blood of Jesus. I hope your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. There are open books at the great white throne of judgment that record the deeds of unbelievers. I hope your name is not written in those books. But then there's the book of remembrance mentioned here by Malachi. This is a precious book. It's a book in heaven that records every secret deed, every unrewarded kindness done by every servant of God. You see, every time you have served the Lord, your act of love and sacrifice has been recorded in heaven. And one day it will be rewarded. It will not be lost. It will not be forgotten. Perhaps no one else saw that kindness that you did or that good deed that you did, but God was a witness to it, and He has recorded it for future recognition. It is in His book of remembrance. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Hey, there is a payday. It just doesn't always come in this life. But God has a book of remembrance, and He will reward every kind, every good deed. Verse 17, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. What a beautiful thought. God thinks of his servants as his jewels. If you serve the Lord, you're his treasure. He says, Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. God assures us that in the end, there is going to be no ambiguity. There's going to be no blurring of the outcomes. There is going to be a clear, undeniable delineation between the plight of the righteous and the plight of the wicked. You'll see. It'll be proven. God will reward those who trust Him. He'll punish those who don't. In eternity, God's servants will get their cut. Everyone will conclude that it definitely paid to serve the Lord. Chapter 4, the final chapter in the Old Testament. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will stumble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. Now remember, in the original text, there are no chapter divisions. And so these verses continue to advance the thoughts started in chapter 3 about Messiah's coming. The second coming of Jesus is clearly in view here. And the question was raised, does it pay to serve the Lord? And God's answer, yes. And it will be clear on payday. When Jesus returns, the wicked will be judged. And the righteous will sparkle like jewels. There'll be no question as to whether it paid to serve God on payday. 
Verse 2, but to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. One day, the son will arise. Jesus will return. The New Testament never refers to Jesus as the son of righteousness. This is an Old Testament term. In the New Testament, Revelation 22, verse 16, do you remember what Jesus is called? Not the son of righteousness, but what? The bright and morning star. And there's a significant reason for this difference of idioms. You see, the church, we look for the morning star. We look for that star that appears in the sky just before the dawn comes, the day dawns. Jesus raptures the church before he judges the world. He comes as the star before he appears as the sun. But once the morning star fades from the sky, the red hot sun of righteousness will appear and shine in all his blazing glory. The sun of righteousness burns up the wicked as he blesses those who fear him. The same sun, the same heat will both blister and bless. And thus the outcome of every individual will depend on the character of the person on whom this light falls. The wicked are like trees in the desert. They're parched and brittle, one flicker of fire, and they're scorched. While those who fear the Lord are like trees planted by the waters, living waters. And the sun's light stimulates their growth. Now the remainder of Malachi outlines four blessings that come upon the Jews who fear the Lord at Messiah's return. When the Son of Righteousness arises, He will do four things. He will bring healing. He will cause growth. He will triumph over Israel's enemies. And He will restore broken relationships. And these blessings don't just belong to Israel, for in a spiritual sense, they belong to everyone who fears the Lord, including His church. In fact, if you reverence God in your life, if you regard Jesus properly, then the Son of Righteousness will rise up in your heart and He will bless you first with healing in His wings. The Hebrew word wings is kanaf which means to project. On a bird, this is the wing, but on a garment, it's a flap. On a building, it's the ornament or the pinnacle. For an army, it's the flank. For the sun, it's the rays or the light beams. It's whatever projects. And when you fear the Lord and when you bow to His ways, the first thing He projects into your life is healing. You know, living life on your own takes its toll. It's like dancing through a minefield. But when you get on track with God, He heals what hurts. He mends what's been broken. If you hurt tonight, you need Jesus. He's the great physician. It's been said, virus is a Latin word used by doctors to mean your guess is as good as mine. But healing isn't guesswork with Jesus. He has designed us. He knows how we're to work. He knows what makes us tick. It's been said, never argue with a doctor. He has inside information. And so often God's medicine comes to us in the form of His Word. 
How many of our ills could be cured instantly by simply applying the Word of God to our lives? One man noted, miracle drugs are nothing new. Moses had two tablets that could solve any sickness. Notice in verse 2, the second blessing that comes to those who fear the Lord is growth. Jesus will cause you to go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. He'll supply us our every need and with great abundance. Obviously, God's been working in my life. Now, some of you that are on slim fast diets or Weight Watchers or you've been going to the gym may have a hard time getting excited over this imagery. But Malachi is thinking spiritually, not physically. If we fear the Lord, He will fatten us up like stall-fed calves. And no, Malachi, he isn't speaking of grazing cattle. Hey, when will we as Christians learn that it is not for us to graze? God doesn't want us grazing. It's not our responsibility to wander through the fields of life looking for satisfaction and for blessing. God promises to bring the blessing to us like a stall-fed calf. When we make that commitment that that he'll, when we make that commitment to him, he'll feed us from his trough. He'll fill it with all the feed we need. You don't have to comb the bars to find the right babe. You don't have to hop from job to job to job. You don't have to jump to the latest fad to be fulfilled. Just fear and trust the Lord. Just stay in the stall, man. Abide in Christ. Rest in the Lord. And his blessings will come to you. Fear the Lord, wait on Him. He'll bloat you with blessings. And then the third blessing is triumph. Verse 3. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus will cause those who fear His name to trample their enemies. God doesn't want you and I to muddle through life. He wants us to live in victory. He doesn't just want us to survive. He wants us to thrive. God wants to break the chains that hold us down. He wants to help us shake the habits that hinder our progress. As your Lord, His goal is to help you become an overcomer. To live above your circumstances. Learn to fear the Lord and you'll fear nothing else. And then in verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And here's the fourth blessing that God comes, God brings to those who fear his name. Restoration of fractured relationships. God promises to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. If you're estranged from your family tonight, there's hope. If you have children that have rebelled against you, if you have prodigal kids, there's hope. When we learn to fear the Lord, God begins to rebuild broken relationships. See, nothing causes your kids to respect you more than when they see you respect the Lord. 
to genuinely, to practically put Him first in your affairs. When we fear the Lord, when we come to God with a broken, humble spirit, God begins to turn the hearts of those we love back to us. I'll never forget one time I was teaching on this passage in Malachi, and it resonated in the heart of a father and a son. They were in our fellowship. They'd been estranged for many, many years. And yet, in recent days, God had worked miraculously to touch them both deeply and to mend their relationship. I'll never forget it. That week, after I taught the Bible study, they both went out and they got tattoos on their shoulders that read Malachi chapter 4, verse 6. Both of them. The following Sunday, they both came in and they rolled up their shirt sleeves and said, Look, Pastor Sandy, look, we put your scripture reference last week on our, on our shoulders. They tattooed Malachi 4, verse 6 on their shoulder. It's the only time I ever thought about it. A tattoo was a good idea. I was really blessed by that one. In verses 4 and 5, Malachi also prophesies that Elijah will come prior to the great and dreadful day of the Lord. You remember when Jesus came the first time, John the Baptist appeared in the spirit and power of Elijah. But when Jesus comes the second time, Elijah himself will come. You recall when Jesus was transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he was clothed in all his glory. Elijah also appeared. You remember I believe when Jesus returns the second time in all his glory, the prophet Elijah will go before him. You know, in Jewish homes during the feast of the Passover, an extra chair is always placed at the table. And do you know who it's for? It's for Elijah. It represents their hope in his coming to pave the way for Messiah. And it is derived from this passage here in Malachi. In Revelation 11, we're told that two witnesses will come prior to the second coming of Jesus. They're given miraculous power. One of them is able to shut up the heavens from raining and call down fire to destroy the enemy. These are the same miracles that Elijah worked. These two witnesses will preach for 1,260 days, and I believe it's a good possibility that one of the two witnesses will be Elijah in fulfillment of this prophecy in Malachi chapter 4. In a nutshell, the message of Malachi is to fear the Lord. I've heard it said, it's more dangerous to trifle with God than to bare your chest to a blizzard or play with a rattlesnake. Do you trifle with God? Have you taken Him for granted? Or do you show Him the respect and give Him the allegiance that He deserves? Malachi was God's last word to the Jewish people before the coming of their Messiah. God meant for this message to stay ringing in their ears for 400 years. And as we approach Jesus' second coming, I believe the same message should be ringing in our ears tonight. It's interesting how the Old Testament ends. The final word, notice, is curse. The law of Moses included not only 613 commands, but also a series of blessings and curses. Under the law, you were required to keep the rules. If you obeyed the rules, you were blessed. If you disobeyed, you were cursed. The problem with the law is that it required a standard of righteousness that exceeded the people's ability to obtain. Try as they might, the Jews could never live up to the law's demands. 
And the outcome of their effort is summed up in this final word, the very last word in the Old Covenant, curse. Man left up to his own is cursed under the law. When the Jewish rabbis read the last verse of Malachi, they were so upset by it. They were so unwilling to admit their own failure that when they read it, they would repeat verse 5 after verse 6 so that the Old Testament ended with Elijah and victory, not with a curse. And yet Malachi's ending can't be escaped. The prophet is warning Israel of a coming curse unless they are able to find a way to be righteous apart from the law. Which, of course, leads us to the message of the New Testament. This is why the New Testament is good news. It reveals the means that God has provided to escape the law's curse. That Jesus was made a curse for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And thus receive His blessing. It's interesting, the Old Testament ends with a curse. Whereas the New Testament ends with grace. The last word in the New Testament is Revelation 22, verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The New Testament ends with a promise of blessing. Galatians 3, verse 13 sums up this transition from Old Testament to New Testament. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, that the blessing might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. The cross of Jesus puts an end to the curse, and now God pours out His grace upon all who believe in His Son. And there we have the book of Malachi.